Welcome back to another episode of Independent Thought. My name is Desmond Price. For those who are returning listeners and or subscribers, thank you so much for coming back to the podcast. And if you are a new listener, welcome to the show. So I do want to apologize first and foremost for this episode being late this week. I do have a good reason for it. For those who are interested, my explanation will be at the end of this episode. For today's topic, we are talking about New York City medallions. And if you're not sure what that is, I will break that down in one second. Some of the sources for this episode include Democracy Now!, uh, The Hill Show Rising, and More Perfect Union. So first and foremost, what are we talking about here? Medallions for New York City taxi drivers. So why are we talking about taxi drivers this week? Well, we're going to get into all of the reasons why but first and foremost it's important to know that there is an ongoing strike that was just resolved as of today involving new york city taxi drivers but we're going to get into all the reasons why they were on strike here in a moment but first and foremost the most important thing not the most important thing let's back up an important thing to know that a medallion essentially for these new york taxi drivers is a permit that is issued by the city itself to operate a yellow cab within the city. Now, these are their individual numbers that you'll see on top of a taxi. Now, this gives taxi drivers the ex exclusive hail rights anywhere within the city. Now, these, these permits, these medallions, as they're called, they have been almost universally marketed towards immigrants uh, within the city itself. Marketing campaigns always targeted towards them. It was trying to get people ingratiated into the city's like community saying that, you know, doing this will bring you closer to American culture and that it's like a gateway into the middle class. It's almost like a promise for immigrants who are coming here looking for a better life. The city is like, hey, looking for a better life. Here's your opportunity. Get a medallion, be a taxi driver. And it was a sense of pride for a lot of these people. 94% of all the taxi drivers within New York City are, in fact, immigrants. Now, I want to set the scene a little bit here because there's a reason, obviously, why these people were on strike. But, and, I mean, to be fair, I mean, this just ended. So there's not a guarantee that they're actually not completely done being on strike yet. But more details will come out about that. So setting the scene a little bit here. During the Bloomberg administration, when, if you guys remember Mayor Bloomberg from the Democratic primary about like, you know, a year and a half ago, everyone kind of hated that guy. Well, there's more than one reason for that, more than just stop and frisk. So under the Bloomberg administration, New York City was kind of experiencing a, a budgetary shortfall. And so one of their ways of making up revenue that they did not have was they thought that they would increase the price for these medallions. So at the time, 
medallions were going for around $200,000 that the city would auction off to these taxi drivers. Well, the Bloomberg administration decided to artificially inflate this price 500%, taking it from 200,000, sometimes up to a million dollars for one of these permits. Now, as you can imagine, this was crushing for a lot of these taxi drivers. But again, they were promised that this was their way into the middle class. And, you know, as a taxi driver in New York, you're going to be able to find a way to pay that off eventually, and it'll be worth it, right? Well, the city raked in a bunch of money because of this. In fact, it seems as though New York City has raised around $855 million in revenue just off doing this alone. But plenty of government agencies around the country you know, after looking into this matter, kind of were a little, what's the word I'm looking for here? They didn't have the best feelings around what New York City did. Seven different agencies particularly noted that what New York City did was inflating the value of these medallions. And so on top of the fact that these medallions have been overly priced into a place where most people are not going to be able to pay back this this amount of money, because one of the things I should have mentioned alongside of this is obviously these people aren't going to be able to pay for these medallions out of pocket in one shot. These are people with not a whole lot of money to their name. That's why they're becoming taxi drivers. And so they essentially have to get loans to pay these off. And like a mortgage, you know, with any amount of money that high, you're paying this off every month, you know, probably for a lot of these people over the course of their entire life. And so on top of that fact, you have to also put into the equation that around 2011, this is when Uber and Lyft really started to come into New York City. And when that happened, the New York City taxi drivers almost immediately, but not so much dramatically at first, but immediately, they saw their revenue start to get cut. And it only continued to go down as you know, year after year went on, especially as Uber and Lyft got more and more popular. Between 2011... And 2019, taxi drivers in New York City saw their revenue decrease by 44%. 44%. And all the while, the price of their medallions actually never dropped. And so they were stuck with these really, really super high price loans that they had to pay on a month in and month out basis without really any way to make up for this lost revenue that they've had to experience now because of the Lyft and Uber entering the market. And another thing on top of that really becomes is that the New York City taxi drivers, you know, they have a cap within the city. There's only so many of them who are allowed to operate within the city. But when New York City allowed Uber and Lyft to start operating within the city, they did not put a cap on them. And one of the things that Uber and Lyft do with their companies is they go out of their way to flood any market with as many cars as possible to drown out the competition. And this severely impacted these taxi drivers. So again, you know, they are stuck with these loans that they can't pay. They are just getting less and less uh, abilities to even get fares because of Uber and Lyft being in the market. And this was taking a massive toll on the drivers. And with these loans that they had piling up, they were just accruing more and more debt. Some people, you noted the fact that they had gotten a loan 
you know, originally for a medallion that was like $300,000. And over the course of a decade or so, their loan had actually almost doubled, being over the tune of $600,000. In fact, according to the executive director of the New York Taxi Union, the average debt for a taxi driver in New York City is $550,000. $550,000. It makes everyone's school loans look a little bit ridiculous, right? Just uh, imagine having that much debt that you're saddled with. And these people are working around the clock trying to pay that. Because that's just that is just one debt that you have to pay. I'm sure these people also have rent they're trying to pay. Maybe they have family members have student loans they're also trying to deal with. I mean, the monthly payments for some of these loans, you know, were around average around like $2,000 a month. I mean, on top of what your rent probably is in New York City and the, just the cost of living in a city like that, I mean, that is unmanageable. In fact, you know, one taxi driver in particular was interviewed by Democracy Now!, Augustine Tang, and he said that he had a payment of $2,800 a month for his medallion. And unfortunately, these debts, they can go past your entire lifetime. Because if for any reason, a taxi driver were to pass away, this debt actually would get saddled onto their widows. And so for instance, there was one driver who unfortunately passed away and his wife became saddled with this debt. And she, you know, remarked about how her social security check every month was in fact less than the payment for the medallion that she was stuck with that was her husband's that she's now stuck with every single month. Like just that one bill is more than her entire income. I, I mean, it's honestly, I, I couldn't believe this when I when I came across the story. This this is honestly amazing to me that the city of New York, which touts itself for being this super progressive city, would allow these working class people to be taken advantage of to this level. Nine hundred and fifty taxi drivers have filed bankruptcy because of the weight of these loans, and nine drivers have unfortunately taken their lives and committed suicide. One of which did so right near Mayor Bill de Blasio's home. Because unfortunately, you know, I just found out about this story recently, but this has been going on for years. For years, these taxi drivers have been begging for relief and they have been largely ignored by de Blasio's administration. You know, they have been asking for these loans to be restructured or for there to be some kind of ceiling put on the, the actual like debt itself. And after years of asking, de Blasio did offer a plan, but the plan was actually to bail out lenders, lenders, wanted to bail out the banks, not the drivers. And so this all leads to the end of September, where just recently, these taxicab drivers did a 30-day around-the-clock protest in front of City Hall. And they were just hoping that 
anyone in the in the uh, de Blasio administration would give them the time of day, would listen to them, would hear what they had to say, to talk to them about this debt, this crushing debt that they're experiencing. Because not only were they being crushed by this debt that was you know coming after them, but then now we have to add into effect what the pandemic has done to everybody. And so everything came grinding to a halt, obviously during the pandemic, especially in New York City, where they were basically ground zero for COVID. And so the whole city was shut down, but did these loans get paused? No. So the, these people are in a dire situation right now. And 30 days, day and night, they sat outside of city hall. The mayor did not show up and talk to them. No one from the administration would talk to them. And so they decided to take it a step further. And two weeks ago, they decided to do a hunger strike. So as of yesterday, when this episode is premiering, as of yesterday, the taxi drivers had been doing a 14-day hunger strike. Now, a New York City state, I'm sorry, a New York state assembly person, Zohan um, Mamdani, decided to join the hunger strike in solidarity. And he recently came on the Hills program rising to talk about what exactly it is that these drivers are asking for. And here's the clip of that. What, what are the demands that you're hoping are, are going to be met in order for the hunger strike to end? Fundamentally, the demand is for the city to guarantee these drivers loans. And what that means is that if a driver were to default on their payments, that the city would step up and pay the balance to the lender. And that's critical for two reasons. One is because when these drivers have defaulted thus far, lenders have gone after everything that they own, their car, their home, their other assets that they may have. And two is that when you guarantee a loan, it then incentivizes the lender to offer more favorable terms to the driver because the risk has been eliminated from the equation. And so right now, the current relief program still allows for drivers to pay up to $2,000 a month. And that is just out of reach for almost all of the drivers who are currently operating a vehicle today. And I could totally imagine why that would be out of reach for most people today. I could not imagine having to pay that much money for, I mean, just on, because again, it's not like if that's your only bill, that is just a bill. You know, I mean, you, you add that onto whatever it is you're paying in rent in New York City. I mean, just those two bills alone, you're probably paying, what, over 4,500, five grand a month between two bills? I, I mean, it's unsustainable, especially given the fact, again, that your ability to generate income has been cut in half, cut in half by Uber and Lyft. So you're in a no-win situation. Some of these drivers were speaking to More Perfect Union, who, again, does great reporting. If you're not already, follow More Perfect Union. They're everywhere. Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, go find them. Uh, they spoke to More Perfect Union, and they're talking about working 14-hour days, you know, as much as humanly possible and still not being able to make ends meet. Like, it is absolutely incredible. So they were asking, on top of, what the assemblymen mentioned, they also wanted to restructure these loans so that they were paying a cap of $800 a month. Because again, two grand a month is insanity. And that's just the average. Now, thankfully, as I'm bringing you this story today, uh, just yesterday, the New York Taxi Union did announce 
that they have reached a deal with the city. So the city has guaranteed these loans and they are now restructuring them so that the max amount that a loan can be will be $170,000 and that there'll be no debt beyond their lifetime. Now, as far as what exactly that all means, I couldn't really tell you. They haven't released a whole bunch of information as of right now. And there was a part of me that, you know, once, once I heard that this got somewhat resolved, and again, the, the drivers haven't really spoken too much on this. I don't know what the details are. I don't know if they are actually officially ending their strike or not. But either way, I almost thought about not bringing you this story, but still wanted to bring this story, even though it, is, it seems to be resolved at the moment. And, and, there's, and there's a few different reasons why. You know, the first and foremost is Bill de Blasio dragged his feet for what seems like a couple of years. He had these concerns brought to him time and time and time again, was very well aware of it, and people needlessly suffered and died because of negligence, because of apathy, because of indifference. And that is all while he was running for president just about a year and a half ago, almost two years ago now, Bill de Blasio was running for president as this super progressive. I remember him being on stage in the 2019 Democratic primaries talking about all these progressive agendas. Meanwhile, these taxi drivers back in his city were begging for relief and he wouldn't even meet with them. I mean, there is, there is honestly so much to say here, but, but this is truly a story about the interconnectedness between, between economic despair and how it can just go across your entire life. Because the, the one thing that stood out to me, truthfully, the reason why I gravitated towards this story, I'm going to get to that in a second, but people were econo are economically burdened by this debt that they should never have had to have. I mean, th these were as predatory as predatory loans can possibly have been. Artificially increasing the price of these permits to damn near a million dollars. And if these drivers were to sell them now, they would be sold for a value of around 100K. So their value has depreciated substantially, but they still have to pay what they originally bought them for. And people were, are just absolutely at their wit's end. I mean, again, multiple people filing for bankruptcy. I mean, and for those who are not familiar, bankruptcy can damn near ruin your life. I mean, 10 years, you have that on your record. Your credit's absolutely wiped out. You can't apply for loans after that for the most part. I mean, it, it really is devastating when you have to apply for bankruptcy. And then you have people again committing suicide. You know, this really this story just seems very interconnected with the other stories that I've been touching on recently, where I talked about the strikes that were happening across the country right now, and also talking about the reconciliation bill. But let me just talk about the strikes first. People across this country are working their asses off, and they are just getting absolutely taken advantage of on so many different levels. And this is just another case of that. These people working their asses off for their entire lives, just trying to make an honest living. And they've been saddled with a debt that they could never repay. They, they never repay. 
Some of these people were paying these bills into their graves and they were just paying off the interest. They never even got a chance to pay the principal. And, and that is so disgusting that the city of New York issued these loans out to people knowing that there was no way they could probably ever pay it off, especially after Uber and Lyft entered the market. And there was no desire to restructure the deal with these people. They were just going to let them suffer. Didn't care whatsoever. And so, and then you add on to the fact, as I was saying before, the devastation that the pandemic has brought into people. I mean, the economy for so many around the country, like grinded to a halt for a while and bills stacked up. They absolutely stacked up and people are trying to pay back all that massive amounts of debt right now. And that just seems to be the story around the country right now. And we're seeing now because of it, so many people who are going on strike because they're just tired. They're tired. They're fed up. They're absolutely downtrodden upon. I mean, people absolutely need relief. And that, again, brings me back to talking about this reconciliation bill right now. I've heard a lot of gross takes about this reconciliation bill, about how, you know, especially from, from no offense if Republicans are listening, but no offense again, but I've heard a lot of Republicans talking about how the reconciliation bill is just some some massive government giveaway, some socialist giveaway. It's just targeted towards handouts and it's just trying to help lazy people. But that that's, has nothing to do with any of this. These workers around the country, whether we're talking about workers you know, that are coal miners in Alabama or John Deere workers who are currently on strikes or healthcare workers who are on strike or these taxi drivers in New York, these people are working their asses off and they are just asking for a little bit of relief, just some damn dignity. Now, honestly, you know, New York City is run by a bunch of Democrats and it is amazing to me that they constantly talk about wanting to help the working class, especially the working class people of color. And they allowed this to go on for so long and, and it took this, like it's like a hunger strike outside of their city hall before they actually even gave them some relief. They're not even canceling these loans. They're just, they're just capping them at a certain point and they're lowering the, the monthly payments. I mean, this is absolutely disgusting when they know that what exactly they did to put these people into this position in the first place. And, and so I, I got to say, man, we, we really need to do better overall. Truthfully speaking, we really need to do better overall. Joe Biden's administration right now is talking about building back better, which is honestly just the Democrat version of make America great again, if we're just being honest. But if you really want to build the country back better, if, you, if, the, if this reconciliation bill is really supposed to be trying to help people, if we're really trying to make people's lives better, we need to be giving people some economic relief because people around this country are financially strapped. They are hurting. They need relief. And we need to stop pretending as if struggling to survive is somehow an American norm that we all are supposed to just deal with. Because if the government provides any kind of relief to people, it's somehow a handout. That's absolute bullshit. All of these workers deserve better. These taxi drivers deserve better. I hope that this deal that they've worked out with the city of New York is a good one. 
uh, time will tell in the, in the days to come, but yeah, yeah, we, we all, we all need to keep our eyes out on, on these things because workers across this country absolutely need relief and more people need to be standing up on their behalf. With that being said, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will have my guest for the week. Stay tuned. Betty's Divine is a locally owned boutique on the magnificent hip strip in downtown Missoula, Montana, that has been a fixture in the Mountain West since 2005. We have a fondness for vintage inspired clothing, shoes, and accessories for humans, as well as the real deal found in our vintage department, Divine Trash. Betty's Divine presents a snapshot of Northwest styles with an emphasis on street, skate, surf, and rock and roll culture, as well as Americana classics. Alongside a radical selection of clothing, Betty's Divine offers a damn fine array of shoes, jewelry, records, and accessories to satisfy any taste, whatever your age or vibe. You can count on us to prioritize financial, social, and environmental responsibility without sacrificing the look. Visitors enjoy a lovely atmosphere, dreamy tunes, and the best customer service in the West. And you can shop us online at Betty'sDivine.com. thought listeners has this past year helped you rediscover your creative and crafty side well then you're going to love our sponsor for today's episode bathing beauties beads is a full service bead shop in the heart of downtown missoula whether it's seed beads semi-precious stones vintage beads or just materials to make a project they have something for every person and every price range not from missoula don't worry they have an extensive online store and they will ship directly to you whether you're a beginner or a pro, they'll welcome you and help you make your next project a reality. You can find them online at Bathing Beauties Beads on Instagram and Facebook or at bathingbeautiesbeads.com. And don't forget to use offer code INDEPENDENTTHOUGHT at checkout to save 15% on your order. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Thank you for sticking with us through another episode of Independent Thought. So for my guest this week, I am joined by Will Sutherland, who is a graduate student at Montana State University. Will, thank you for coming on the podcast today. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So this is, you know, the subject I, I had you come on to talk with me about today is not something that I typically get to talk about a whole lot on this podcast, but definitely interested in talking about nuclear power today. So I know that you did some research at the University of Montana in this field. Can you just tell us a little bit about what exactly you did at the University of Montana in regards to researching the subject? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So the, well, I guess in order to uh, kind of fully describe my research, I probably need a little bit of background. So um, for, for nuclear energy, basically you need to um, well, for nuclear fusion research, uh, a lot of the a lot of the fuel, a lot of the particles that you're working with are at super super high energies, so they're too hot to um, to confine with any any material that you know that we know of essentially. Um, so, in order to confine these particles, basically you do it with magnetic fields. So, my research was in designing and optimizing uh, a magnetic field, essentially that would confine 
can find these extremely hot charged particles, basically a plasma um, that would, yeah, basically can find these these particles, um, uh, you know, for for research into nuclear fusion, essentially. So. I've heard about nuclear power before, and I've heard these terms, nuclear fusion, nuclear fission. What exactly is the difference between the two and which one are you, were you like working on at the university? So all of my research was focused on nuclear fusion. Um, the difference, which, you know, I think a lot of people don't, don't recognize the difference. Um, with fission, you're essentially splitting an atom. So you're splitting a much heavier atom into you know, into lighter atoms and getting energy as one of the byproducts of that. Um, with fusion, you're basically fusing two lighter atoms into a heavier atom. Um, one of the most common types of fusion that's being researched is the deuterium-tritium fusion reaction, which is basically combining, um, well, it's, it's heavy water essentially. So it's uh, isotopes of hydrogen. Um, it's essentially hydrogen with an extra neutron and then hydrogen with two extra neutrons, and you basically fuse those to make a helium nucleus and some uh, and an additional neutron, which will be uh, extremely high energy. Um, so that's that's basically fusion in a nutshell. Um, yeah. So I mean, the, the the short version, I guess, would be fission is splitting a heavy atom into two lighter atoms, and fusion is combining two lighter atoms into a heavier atom, and getting okay. energy as a result. Okay, so when you were trying to like develop these magnetic magnetic fields that you were saying, like, what was the primary focus of this research? Like, were you trying to like understand something, or were you trying to like achieve something? Like, what was the process exactly? Um, so essentially, it is uh, just improving. I mean, we, you know, people who are working on fusion have basically understood the concept for a long time. So it's not really trying to understand the concept; it's basically trying to improve our current practices. So my my research was um, focused around, um, so we were collaborating with physicists at the University of Wisconsin. Um, they have what's called the helically symmetric, helically symmetric experiment there. It's basically a, a small, a, basically a small fusion, fusion reactor-like device. Um, and they're, they were potentially planning on building an upgraded version of that. So my work was on optimizing the magnetic field that would be created by this um, by this stellarator is uh, one one term for it for this helically symmetric experiment. Um, so I'd be optimizing the magnetic field. Basically, I would um, we had access to supercomputers at the National Energy Research Scientific Computing Center, um, and through that we can basically you know write a bunch of scripts, write some code, and um, attempt to optimize or find the find the best configuration of this magnetic field that will um, contain, you know, contain these extremely high energy particles for the longest time. Um, in order to, uh, that's basically one of the one of the primary factors in making nuclear fusion efficient um, is the confinement time. So, basically, my goal was to, you know find the optimal magnetic configuration that would confine these high pressure, you know, high energy particles for the longest time possible. Right. So I, I think for the normal, like, you know, like average person who's not entirely like entrenched in this field, when we hear the phrase nuclear power, a lot of people either think of one of two things. You've heard of, you know, potential for great amounts of energy, or you think 
you know, like radioactive byproducts and being an, a potentially like a, you know, an ecological disaster. You know, we think of people who think about Fukushima and other places like that. Could you just tell me a little bit about like the differences, I guess, between like fusion and fission one more time and how they, and, and the radioactive byproducts that come with them, like is fusion safe? Is fission safe? Tell me a little bit what you know about it. So I, and I think, well, and I think a lot of the misconceptions there are due to um, most people's familiarity with nuclear power in general there, you know, when somebody thinks nuclear power, I think generally they think of fission because that's, you know, what we've had for the past, oh, 60 years. Um, so that being said, uh, I, I, yeah, I think there's a lot of misconceptions um, that get attributed to nuclear power in general because of nuclear fission. So, um, you know, when, when I when I talk about the word nuclear, essentially all we're talking about is the nucleus. That's where the term comes from. So nuclear fission is the splitting of the atom. Nuclear fusion is fusing two lighter atoms. And when it comes to fission, the you know the, the biggest problem with fission is the radioactive byproducts. Um, you're dealing with you know like uranium two thirty five, which has a half life of I, I don't know it offhand. It's several million years. Um, so basically. You know, it'd take, I think the half-life's about 7 million years. So it'd take about half, you know, it'd take about 7 million years for, you know, half of that uranium to basically degrade into something less radioactive. Um, on the other hand, with nuclear fusion, there is very little, um, very few radioactive byproducts. I mean, you are, your initial fuel, I mean, there's there's several different ways you can do it, um, but one of the most efficient ways to do it is the deuterium-tritium uh, reaction, which I mentioned previously. So deuterium is really just heavy water. Tritium is radioactive, but it only has a half-life of about 12 years. So compared to the half-life of uranium, which is, you know, on the order of several million years, um, it's, you know, basically negligible at that point. Um, and then when you combine the deuterium and tritium, you're left with helium, which is just, you know, an inert non-radioactive gas and neutrons, which are also, you know, it's just a, just a particle, which is non-radioactive. So that is the main, I mean, that's, that's kind of why, that's why fusion is the, essentially the holy grail of energy, because I mean, there's it, deuterium and tritium are your fuel sources, which are plentiful. Um, we would basically, if we had, you know, many, many uh, operating nuclear fusion reactors, we could power those reactors for thousands of years without ever being concerned about um, enough fuel. Um, so there's that and the fact that there's no radioactive byproducts, which makes, you know, like I said, fusion essentially the holy grail of power. Well, you just stole my next question from me, but that that's all right. I was about to ask you, so you're saying that with enough, I guess, like resources behind this, we wouldn't need another energy source. Is that fair to say, or would there still be some gaps in our energy requirements? I mean, just not even just nationally, but globally. Um, so, I mean, at the end of the day, it all, it all does boil down to how many, how much, how much money do we want to plug into nuclear fusion research and into these, um, into these reactors? I mean, with, with enough resources, you you could, in theory, build you know enough reactors to power the entire planet. Um, the, like I said, the fuel sources are plentiful. So if you have, um, you know, if if you have enough reactors, um, we've got the fuel already. So that's that's really all it comes down to. Um, practically speaking, though, that's that's probably not realistic, just because the funding, 
hasn't been there and I don't anticipate it being there in the in the near future anyways. So right. so my, my next question around that is if this has such a potential upside, you know, like why isn't there like a, a you know, a better source of funding? You said that you were working with some physicists at the University of Wisconsin, but it seems like there really isn't that many places in our country that are even like doing research into nuclear fusion. Like what exactly are the current restrictions like politically and technically speaking? Like, why aren't we seeing more resources thrown behind this? Well, so, I mean, I think part of it is, well, I guess just, just for starters, just to get uh, just to get an idea of how much funding they are getting. Um, let me check my notes here real quick. Um, yeah, so basically the US government is spending about $450 million on nuclear fusion annually. Um, so compared to the U.S. military budget, which is $725 billion annually. Um, so, you know, we can see that the, the funding is not substantial there. Um, and as far as why it's not getting the funding, um, it probably boils down to a couple things. Um, one of which is, I mean, I, I think there's just not incentive for clean energy. We don't... Um, it's just not incentivized to have clean energy. I mean, right now we're too comfortable, you know, using fossil fuels, you know, essentially. Um, but if clean energy was made a priority, then this could, you know, this could become, you know, a very, very large portion of our of our energy resources, essentially. Um, so, I mean, I, I think, I think part of it is just that the there isn't a need right now for, you know, there isn't an, an immediate need, or at least it's not deemed an immediate need to have nuclear energy or nuclear fusion right now. Um, I guess the, the contrast to that is we figured out nuclear fission back, you know, in the, in the 40s because, well, essentially because we wanted to, you know, create a, create a bomb out of it. Um, so a lot of our funding, I mean, some of the best scientists in the world were brought in and they basically had unlimited funding to figure out nuclear fission. In this case, there's not quite that same incentive to figure out nuclear fusion. Um, and then I think one of the other factors is essentially the difficulty in doing it. Um, we've been, you know, we've been trying to do, you know, to have efficient nuclear nuclear fusion for, you know, probably 60 years now. Um, and you know, we've certainly made steps in the right direction, but you know, it's been 60 years and we're still not. You know that the best fusion reactors are only getting they're only producing about 67 percent of the energy that you actually put into them right now so it's you know coming out a net negative so i think that that's maybe demoralizing right now and that might be might be one of the reasons that uh that you know that it's not getting the funding or the attention that i think that it deserves yeah and that's kind of like how i want to close this out is you know you probably could have taken on a number of subjects when you went to school as far as what it is that you wanted to study. Uh, why has this subject kind of like captured your attention? Like, like why is nuclear energy where you decided to put your energy more or less? Um, well, I, I mean, I think it's, uh, I think it just boils down to the desire to do something that will be beneficial towards people. Um, and as far as, as far as what I think would help, you know, our society in general, uh, a source of clean energy is about the, 
you know, another source of clean energy is about, you know, one of the most important things I think I could work on. So if I could be be part of a team or be part of a project that, uh, you know, pushed us in that direction, that'd be, yeah, I mean, I could, I could be happy with myself at the end of the day at that point, I think. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. I really do appreciate it. Is there any place that people can reach out to you if they want to ask you questions about nuclear power? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, my personal email address is probably the best. Um, and that's will.sutherland11 at gmail.com. Um, so that's probably the, the best place to reach me. Okay. And I'll have that as a link in the episode description for those who are interested. And again, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. And for everyone else, we will be right back after some final thoughts, after some final, uh, after this final break with my final thoughts of the day. Stay tuned. Thank you. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Thank you for sticking with us through this episode of Independent Thought. If you are not already, please follow me on Instagram at Independent Thought. That is the best place to keep up with the podcast. I want to first and foremost thank my guest for this week, Will Sutherland. Thank you for talking with us about nuclear fusion and nuclear fission for the little pieces there a topic that we have not touched on before. So that was always interesting to have on different conversations onto the podcast, which is my thing. Having on different conversations, different people, different ideas. That is what it is all about. For what is coming next, we are going to be having several episodes over the next few weeks, uh, including getting back on schedule. We will have be having an episode early next week. And I am looking forward to our conversation on there, but I'm not going to tell you the topic just yet, a little bit of a surprise, but we have a candidate episode coming next week for the month of November, and that will be our candidate, Heather Kilpatrick. She is running for the Georgia's 11th district. So be on the lookout for that coming next week. So. As I said in the beginning of this episode, I want to talk about why I was late this week. So the truth be told is that I've been kind of running a little bit behind schedule with the podcast. As I've told many of you now, I've recently been adding YouTube into the mix and trying to balance the schedules of all of this with, you know, the regular podcast and with YouTube and keeping up with everyone on social media, as well as the fact that I do have a regular job that I work. Uh, it has been a lot. It, it's honestly, it's been a lot. And I've kind of just lost track of, uh, lost track of some days and my ability to keep my schedule intact has kind of fallen off a little bit, but going to get it all figured out. Definitely thinking that uh, next couple of weeks here, I'll be back to normal routine. But, you know, the one thing I want to talk about before we end this episode, I, I didn't get a chance to mention it in the first segment because I kind of forgot towards the end to make sure I wanted to add this little personal piece, but I want to add it now. The reason why this particular story, the taxi driver story really caught me I came across it about a week and a half ago. I hadn't heard of it prior to that. It was my first time coming across it. 
And one of the first things I heard was that a taxi driver had committed suicide because of the debt that he was experiencing. And that just absolutely just, it, it, it just kind of like hit me. And I, I know I've heard, you know, about people committing suicide before I, I've heard about people, you know, dying, obviously. Uh, but I, I guess truth be told being a, a little just more open than normal right now. I have also in the past had thoughts of suicide and not for financial debt reasons, but for other reasons. And so I don't know exactly what was going through this person's head before they, before they took their life, but that feeling of hopelessness is a feeling that I'm very familiar with. And so when I came across that story and I saw that this person had taken their life because of this mountain of debt that they accrued, I immediately just felt, just felt hollowed out by, by seeing that a person was willing to just end their life because they did not know how they were going to get out from underneath of this situation. And I had to know more. I had to know what exactly was going on and that these taxi drivers were experiencing this monumental amount of debt. And the more I learned about this story, the more upset that I got because we are now in a situation where, you know, let me just talk about this, the, new, the, the taxi driver specifically for a second. Obviously, Mayor Bloomberg's a piece of shit. I think anybody who actually knows anything about him, they'll attest to that completely, thoroughly. Not a good person. Everyone probably knows that who does know anything about him. Bill de Blasio masqueraded as a progressive champion. He was very aware of this story. He was very aware of what the drivers were going through. He ignored it until he absolutely could not anymore, until it was making the news, until drivers were protesting in front of his city hall, until there was a hunger strike going on, until Congress people, including AOC, got involved, including Chuck Schumer, who's the Senate majority leader, when state assembly people were getting involved. That's when Bill de Blasio finally acted. But here's the crazy part about that is like he had this power all along and he let people suffer and he did not flinch and I, i'm seeing that also now again you know with our washington politicians right now you have you know senate ghouls like kirsten cinema and joe manchin who could very easily sign on to the reconciliation bill. And it sounds like they probably will this week, but they could have done it at a much higher number at the 3.5 trillion number, which they originally were going to. And they just chose not to. They just chose not to. I mean, I mean, these aren't just like policies that are going to be somewhat decent for some people. I mean, these can be life altering things, paid family and medical leave, for instance, which have been taken out of this bill, they could be monumental for so many people. Think of how many women have to go on unpaid maternity leave and then they're financially strapped and they can't work 
but they have to force themselves back into work because if they don't, they could lose everything. We have the ability to help people so they don't have to go through that. And two senators had all the power to make that a reality. And they just chose not to because, quote unquote, they didn't believe in it. They didn't believe in it. What are we talking about here? And I know that some people want to say like, oh, well, you know, don't focus on the two, you know, like mansion and cinema. How about all the Republicans who also don't believe in it? Who gives a damn? We know they don't believe in it. We, we needed all 50 Democrats in order to believe in it, in order to get it done. And two of them chose not to do it. And one of them just didn't even give a good reason why cinema just never even said why she didn't believe in it. She just said, I don't believe in it. And that was the end of the conversation. And she felt as though she didn't owe anything else to anyone else. It is beyond me that people have this power to change lives, fundamentally speaking, and they just, they just won't. On top of that fact, our president, Joe Biden, ran on the idea of forgiving $10,000 worth of student loans. I thought he should have just canceled all of it. Many members of the Senate thought he should cancel $50,000 worth. He has the ability to do so right now. Does not need an act of Congress. All he needs to do is just write it down and it's done. The president has had the authority to cancel publicly, well, government held student debt since 1965. All he has to do is just say, I'm forgiving X amount of student loan debt and it'd be done but he won't do it. He just won't do it. Do you know how many millions of people are saddled with student loan debt that's absolutely crushing their lives? He just won't do it. It, it, it is this consistent pattern, this interlocking pattern that has been driving me crazy recently. It's been driving me crazy. There are people within multiple levels of our government, you know, local, legislative branch nationally, executive branch nationally, they have the power to end a tremendous amount of suffering and they just won't do it. They just absolutely won't do it. And there are people who are truly negatively having their lives forever scarred because of it. And when I came across this particular story, it was just one more story on top of so many stories that I've seen, but I, I, when you hear the human side of it, like people actually taking their lives because they feel like there's no way out from this debt that they're accruing. Like at what point are we as the people going to say enough? At what point are we going to stop letting these politicians basically control our lives like this? I mean, I mean, we need to be more vocal. Uh, I mean, I am on Instagram every single day basically. And it feels like the further away that we've gotten from the 2020 election, the less and less politically motivated people have become. And it's become disheartening. It, it truly has been. I understand that people don't want to talk about politics every single day. I mean, I don't want to either. But I mean, going from being completely engaged to just turning off completely, that's these politicians who don't want to do anything, they thrive in that apathy. And I just hope that more of us will come back into the conversation because if we don't, this inaction will continue to be our norm.
Thank you all for listening. See you in the next episode.